Hi, I'm Kim Kuklitz, and I'm the founder of Stance. And I'm Sarah Zanbergen. I'm the ambassador for Stance, and this is the Take Back Talk Back podcast. We're here to open real conversations about women, finance, and confidence. At Stance, we want women to confidently take ownership of their finances through open and informative conversations like this. Do you remember what you said when I first told you that I saw you as my mentor? Remind me? Well, I don't remember your exact words, but you were trying to tell me that you weren't because we hadn't signed official paperwork with HR. And I think I might have said something like, I don't care you are anyway, (laughs) just because I learned so much simply by working with you. And I learned a lot from you too, Sarah. Well, now I'm remembering my reaction when you first said that to me. I was shocked. And why were you shocked? Well, because of the power imbalance. We are taught from very early on in our careers that those who are in executive roles are the boss. I can't stand that word, Sarah. I know. So I use it to bug you. Have you caught on to that yet? Um, So that's why I'm excited about today's guest. Among other topics, we will be exploring mentorship. Spoiler alert. Mentorship doesn't have an age limit. Ooh, I love that. Today's guest is Avery Francis. Avery can be found speaking on a wide range of topics from personal branding, talent strategy, diversity and inclusion to sexual harassment in the workplace. Welcome Avery to the Take Back Talk Back podcast. Thank you, I'm so excited to be here. We talk a lot about STEM and the lack of diversity in the industry. Something you speak about frequently is using tech to improve diversity and inclusion. How can this help women? Like really, how can it help them? In terms of representation, I think that seeing yourself represented in not only just in tech, but beyond tech, just in work, at work in general, uh, throughout an organization, uh, at every single level of the organization, it's so important to have representation because when you see yourself in leadership, when you see yourself in a senior engineering role, when you see yourself leading a great project or crushing a new client engagement, uh, then that will motivate you to believe that you can actually do it yourself. Uh, So I think that... um, I actually don't rely as much as t- people think on tech, uh, to be to be fair, to build more diverse teams and to have more representation within organizations. But there are tools out there that exist that help to um, complement the strategies that companies have in place to bridge that gender gap that exists currently within the workplace. That makes a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, Sarah and I are both believers that, you know, in order to gain confidence in something, you actually have to do it. You've got to be uncomfortable. And and sometimes it is uncomfortable for women, you know, to go forward with something because they just don't have the confidence. So when we get better being comfortable, being uncomfortable, then we can, we, we surprise ourselves in what we can actually do and, and how that makes us feel all around. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. Totally. And getting comfortable with being uncomfortable is a big part of that. But I think that um, the first part of navigating that is actually knowing that it's possible, knowing that it can happen, knowing that it is a true thing, knowing that it, it is something that's within reach for you. And I think that the more that we open up discussions and conversations about, you know, the trials that women face within the workplace uh, and letting people know that they're not alone uh, in having a shitty boss, they're not alone in experiencing harassment in the workplace, they're not alone if they've uh, had you know, a colleague persistently ask them for their number or to go out on a date when they're looking just to partner with them and and collaborate with them to work with them. I think that this 
actually helps people and women in particular to understand that there is opportunities out there for them to work and to work within peace and to work within a safe space. When I think about possibility and what that looks like for women in the workplace, I like to acknowledge that the workplace as it is right now, the systems that are in place weren't built with women in mind. Uh, They weren't built for working women. They weren't built for women that have multiple children. They weren't built uh, for women that uh, have to navigate harassment quietly and silently uh, whilst making less than their male counterparts. Uh, And then this is particularly true as well for like, you know, women, racialized women, right? Um, They're showing up at work every day, oftentimes being the primary breadwinner, oftentimes making less than their male counterparts, oftentimes making less than their white women identified counterparts. And then beyond that, they're holding now the burden of pushing diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives at work. I just wanted to go back to one thing that you said, and to me is one of the most important words is the safe space. So Stance is actually built on having a safe place to be able to teach and nurture women that need help, no matter what situation they're in. So I find that very important, whether it's in physical space, at a workplace, or even when you're trying to learn something new for the first time and you want to do it on your own because you feel safe, that's kind of why Stance is so digital, is that we want to be able to give them all the information and give them a platform where they can do it at their own pace and their own speed and their own skill set to learn. And Avery, thank you for what you just said. And it really reminded me of um, yesterday, I saw a live video from one of our colleagues and friends, Jam Gamble who's also a guest on another episode of this podcast, which we're really excited about. And she said something that really resonated with me. And and what, what you just said about racialized women when they come into the workplace are often expected to lead diversity and inclusion. And she made a very good point. You know, she's been approached a lot recently and said, okay, so you're, you're a diversity and inclusion champion. And she says, no, that's not my role. Just because I'm a woman of color, that doesn't automatically make me that. So we're expecting that of these women over and above what they're already doing. And like you say, you know, being the main breadwinner and coming to work and, and approaching a a system that isn't built for them. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, and by the way, please lead our diversity and inclusion. And it's such a heavy expectation that, you know, I think subconsciously, you know, we've just, I think the bottom line is, and I say this as someone with privilege and I recognize that, we have a lot of learning to do. And it's right across the board. I think that people, regardless of how you identify or the unique intersections of your identity, we all have learning and unlearning to do. Black folks are learning and unlearning right now about communities um, that have and face similar forms of oppression uh, that we do, uh, that we don't necessarily share that identity with. So I think that the conversation that has come as a result of the uprising, the rebirth of this Black Lives Matter movement, um, and uh, it really taking center stage over the last uh, several months is actually talking about all uh, the different um, forms of marginalization, oppression, and everything that underrepresented folks and racialized folks experience. Uh, so I'm happy that we're now talking about Indigenous peoples more. Uh, and I'm learning a lot more about that community, uh, right? And, and how we can support and make and, and reconcile um, the harm that we've done as, as part of um, the oppression of that community. So there's been a lot that's come from this. I actually watched uh, Jam Gamble's live and I thought it was interesting because uh, it made me think a lot about what activism is. Activism, you know, 60 years ago 
was a lot different. Activism was marching. Uh, activism was, you know, boarding up signs and uh, collectively coming together. And now we have this, the, the support of, and sometimes the demise of social media. Uh, that's also um, a big part of what we what activism looks like. You can be an activist and not necessarily be out going to um, going to marches. Uh, you can show activism through where you spend your money, who you support, who you're an ally to, how you show up as an ally, the learning that you do. So I think that Jam Gamble, although she ne doesn't necessarily identify as an activist, which is fair, I think she's doing activism in her own way. Lots of love and respect to Jam. <laughs> We're big fans of Jam. We had a lot of fun with her on our podcast. And, and, you know, this kind of loops back to the whole being comfortable, being uncomfortable. Doing that work is an uncomfortable thing. Learning is uncomfortable. And, and that, you know, goes to activism as well as uh, financial literacy. Learning is a lifelong process. And Kim and I talk about this all the time. I think that there's a bit of a holdover that, that's kind of like, okay, well, I'm an adult now. Like I should be fully formed. I should be done learning. And that's just not the case. It's just not. So that that kind of stretches across a whole myriad of topics. The uncomfortable part of learning and growth from what I've gathered, both through the work that we do at Bloom uh, and just conversations I've been having with friends and family, is that it's not necessarily learning about new things that's uncomfortable. It's learning sometimes when you're wrong about a thing. It's learning that an opinion or a behavior or a way of living that you had at one point wasn't necessarily totally inclusive towards a specific group of people or to a, to an individual person. And what I found is that oftentimes the, the biggest barrier to really doing this work uh, in a way that's going to be um, transformative for people is ego. Uh, and I think that that's the discomfort is really uh, checking your in with yourself and uh, navigating your own ego and sometimes reconciling when you're wrong. It's okay to be wrong, right? Uh, it's more so about what you do after being wrong or uh, what you do after maybe doing the wrong thing or saying the wrong thing that matters most. So taking it back to staffing, I think that it's really important for employers that they look through a talent lens instead of a gender lens. And, um, you know, again, we've got a lot of work here to do, but I get really excited when I see it. Um, at the bank, we do have hiring managers who have names scrubbed from their resumes when they're reviewing them so that they are truly looking at the person's skills and not inferring gender. So um, I, my question is, you talk about writing more inclusive job descriptions. So for, from an employer standpoint, what can employers do to make sure they're hiring the right people in the right roles? Oh, there's so much there. So number one, this seems pretty uh, obvious, but interview more than one person. Uh, <laughs> you'd be surprised how many companies have made a hiring decision and they've only interviewed one individual. And I think that in how you ensure you're making the right decision is you need to have a framework put in place to help to inform those decisions. You can't just have folks going into an interview process, uh, asking whatever questions come to mind at the time, not asking similar and, and, and consistent standardized questions across the board of every candidate. Because then what happens is just like any sort of research process, you're not analyzing people from the same lens. Uh, you're not analyzing them through the same framework. So what happens is you have this disjointed interview process, uh, a lot of data points and information about a candidate uh, or more multiple candidates that aren't necessarily um, 
they're not collaborated across the board and that you don't have those uh, specific data points to make those informed decisions around how someone truly measured up against another individual. Because that's ultimately what it is, is uh, when you're interviewing and meeting with multiple people, assessing them against each other. So there needs to be some sort of standardized process in place. There needs to be some sort of rating card or a scorecard that you're working from. And then from there, what you can do is you can build a streamlined and consistent interview process that fosters an inclusive uh, interview process. You actually have uh, more diverse representation through the interview process and then hopefully through to actually hiring and onboarding these people to join your team. That makes perfect sense. As somebody that has interviewed, you know, I've been with the company almost 30 years and throughout my 30 years, um, I've interviewed a number of people. And, you know, with all the changes and what's happening, having, as you say, the right framework or the right process in doing it. The one thing I struggle a bit with is I like to really get to know somebody. So when I'm interviewing them, I sometimes have to stop myself because like Avery, if I was interviewing you, like, uh, like I want to know about you. Like it's just me getting to know you better and making you feel more comfortable. But then it's like, no, no, Kim, you can't ask those questions. And then I feel like I can't be my true self either when I'm interviewing because I'm worried that, you know what, don't step out of the line and ask questions that you shouldn't be asking. I have a bit of trouble with that. It's just because of my personality. I'm really wanting to get to know you, but I do appreciate that out in the industry, um, people do make those judgment calls. So I, I just have to, I just have to learn to get better at, at doing that and, and maybe channeling it a bit different, but you know, it's a good segue into, into talking about salary negotiation, which has become more commonplace, perhaps not commonplace enough uh, yet, but we don't talk a lot about making a career move and how it affects you financially. There seems to be this school of thought that if you're starting at the bottom in a new career, you should expect to make less than you make. And it's almost discouraged to try and negotiate a higher salary based on the skills you're bringing to the role. You know, when you've got a young person starting and yes, they have the skill sets, that's great. But experience plays a huge role in someone meeting expectations of a job. And so when someone has the skill set and they come in with, you know, this figure in their head because they have that skill set, I'm, I'm challenged a bit with the fact that, yeah, that that's great. But you know what? The fact that, you know, you get your foot in the door, it's up to you once you get in the door to, to learn the experience as you go along, right? Because that's not taught in school. It just isn't. Um, so, and I'm talking about someone freshly coming out of school. And I, I think that's where this question was going. Experience to me almost outweighs some of the skill set. You know, a great manager is a manager that's that's had experience in the role. The way that I mentor people at my office is sharing the past experiences, which they wouldn't have got just because they've got a great skill set. So anyway, there's my piece on that. But wh- what do you think about that, Avery? Okay. So a couple things. I want to touch back on the point that you made previously about interviewing um, because it seems as though, and what I'm hearing is that there's some habits that you've built around how you connect with people and how you learn about people in the interview process, which I mean, we all have those. Uh, uh, But habits um, are things that are easy to 
to shift. Um, and what I'd encourage you to do and, and anyone that's listening um, around hiring is if you have this more conversational approach and where you're really wanting to actually dig deep and learn more about the person, which is totally fair and understandable and expected, uh, especially now more than ever, because you won't maybe even get the chance to physically work with this person or meet them in person for a while. Who knows how long that's going to be? So I can understand why people are wanting to learn more. But uh, with that said, I think that there's an obvious power dynamic that exists in the interview process that's always tipped in the hiring manager or the company's favor. So with that, there needs to be some sort of acknowledgement and understanding that there needs to be some sort of framework and consistency around some of these more personal questions. You can learn about someone um, and, and a deeper level about them, uh, but you can have some structure around it. So number one, it's consistent uh, and, and and also, so it's streamlined. And so there's, there's no room for that person being impacted in a negative way because the intention here is good, right? Uh, when you're wanting to dive in and learn about someone's home life, uh, I mean, there's some cer certain things legally from an HR perspective you just simply can't ask. But uh, if you're kind of wanting to understand and learn more about how someone spends their personal time, things that they're working on, projects that they've been excited about, or even a new skill that they're picking up, there's ways of asking people about that, uh, whether it be earlier on in the process or it's like a fun kind of challenge that someone gets to put together, like a presentation about themselves. Recently, we actually had a candidate um, who, who put together a video, right, on their own accord that said, uh, hey, I know you're probably going to ask me, you know, how people would describe me. So I collected some feedback from a bunch of my past colleagues and friends. This person had like 15 of their friends, uh, sorry, past colleagues come together, put a little video with their iPhone uh, up, and then they actually submitted this video as a part of their interview process. Uh, you know, that was such a cool thing. And I mean, it really helped that individual to stand out through the interview process. And it was such a so, right. Like, but I think that that's actually something that you could not necessarily that specific out outcome, but something along that lines. But I, I really want to emphasize that like the impact matters so much more than your intention. So if your intentions are good, that's, that's fine. <laughs> But if the impact in some cases can trigger, uh, whether it be a past trauma for someone or maybe a socioeconomic disadvantage that they may have, it might be wavering in this area where it could put you or other hiring managers from your team at risk. And I'm saying this not for you specifically, Kim, but just for people that are listening in. No, that's why we've got this, Avery. This is good, right? I really, I really value this because me being at the company for 30 years, you know what I mean? I'm not out there. So no, I love this. And, I, and this, this is hugely helpful for our audience. So no, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more on this, but I was going to say, and you said it rightly. So just because my intentions are good, doesn't mean that it didn't leave a negative impact on somebody. And, and so I've got to be aware of that. And, and you know what, this is really good advice for people. Seriously. Yeah. And the impact can shift, right? Someone, you could have a really fantastic conversation and someone could open up and share a lot of really, uh, you know, personal, intimate details about their life, uh, respond in a positive way. However, if that person eventually doesn't maybe get the job or maybe you get into negotiations and you offer them less, they may think, hey, I disclosed that I just got married. And that's the reason why they're not offering me what I deserve because my I shared how my husband works in like as a senior VP at a right. company. Or uh, right. I feel like this is maybe discriminatory because I shared that I, um, you know, 
just had a child and I'm trying to navigate the whole childcare thing right now. And that's the reason why they didn't hire me. Uh, we call trainings that we do via Bloom, my company, we call them learning experiences because we're meeting people in their learning journey because uh, learning is a lifelong thing. It's not just a one-off like two-hour training and you have all the information that you need. <laughs> we have a learning experience called Building for Inclusion. We talk a lot about what you can and cannot say in the interview process and, and, and oftentimes even how you respond when a candidate might disclose some of that information to you. Uh, and that's a hard situation to be in because you want to like be human and respond, but in some cases legally, it's just not smart. So yeah. Um, but answering your questions about career shifts, uh, I think that that's a really interesting part of this conversation because right now we're seeing an overwhelming amount of people that are being laid off uh, or you're being reorg out of an organization or just like reorged in general within an organization. So we see a lot of people that have been impacted by COVID uh, layoffs that are on the hunt for new roles and new opportunities. And we're seeing some uh, longstanding legacy industries that are being really shaken up, uh, retail in particular, where we're seeing people that are looking to make a big shift, um, perhaps into tech or into other industries uh, from some of these big retail organizations. There's two areas we need to focus on. Number one, it, it starts with role descriptions and the way that we're positioning jobs in general. And that's actually on the, the employer. So how pl employers are positioning what they're looking for and what skill sets are actually required to do well in that role, what that looks like. I think that role descriptions, oftentimes I see so many job descriptions out there now where it's like, okay, you don't actually need that to do that job. <laughs> or or <laughs> you don't really need seven years of experience in that. Or you don't need like specifically like recruiters. You don't need a master's degree in HR or whatever to be a recruiter. Like let's let's just take a couple yeah, steps let's back let's be here. honest on this. I agree. <laughs> right? So um, I think that if when I, when the analytical side of me looks at role descriptions and job descriptions, sometimes I, a part of me, and this is like that radical kind of good, bad binary where I'm like, let's just throw job descriptions out. They're useless. But I, there is a lot of value in them to tell a story. There's a, there's a story that could be told there. Uh, and it's a great tool to engage people that aren't necessarily on the hunt for a job or that wouldn't necessarily think of joining your company because of how you position it. But with that said, when actually positioning some of the things that you're looking for, uh, if you're wanting to attract a more diverse group of people, whether it be diversity of thought, background, race, gender, et cetera, et cetera, uh, removing some of those barriers in terms of the expectations that you're looking for helps. And that actually helps to promote more transitions within careers, people taking that step um, into a new industry, or maybe even taking a step back in their career, right? Uh, and maybe trying out a new industry, trying out a new role. Now for advice for people that are actually looking to do this, I think that you'd have to work a little harder, like anything, when something's new, uh, you'll have to work a little harder within the role once you get there. And it's going to be no different when you're actually applying to try to get that new opportunity. So you'll likely have to work a little harder outside of the realm of your resume to show how you do have relevant skills and experience to actually apply for that role and to, to shine in that role, to, to, to thrive in that role. Um, and I think that that means not sending the resume you send for every other role. It means not sending out like a canned message. It means like looking to connect with people at that company. It means telling a story about your background and experience and how you ended up here on your cover letter within the email when, in which you apply. Uh, it also means perhaps positioning yourself in a different way, right? So maybe on your resume at the top of the, of the, of the, of the, um, of the page put, you know, uh, you know, marketer now looking to pursue whatever, or I've seen things that I wouldn't necessarily are totally inclusive because it could be triggering for someone uh, in saying like recovering um, accountant 
now looking to move into the world of fintech, right? Like there's different ways you can position yourself. Like this is totally like a marketing creative type thing. But I think that that actually helps for you to highlight your skills in a unique and interesting way, uh, mainly because uh, one, applicant tracking systems are going to are stacked up against you because they use really, really terrible artificial intelligence that will not completely um, make you invisible once you've applied for the role. And the second thing is, is that oftentimes hiring managers spend about six seconds looking at your resume. So they look at things like your name, your title, how long you were at a company and um, some of the brands or like uh, company names that you've worked with. That's where they, that's as far as they go. Uh, So if you don't have all the things that they're looking for in their mind, and this is, again, that's where we talk about the company side, really getting uh, to the core of what you're looking for, then you're going to be, you're going to be dismissed uh, very early on before you even get a chance to interview for the role. So you have to do everything you can to market yourself to that company and to that role. Let's talk about women in leadership roles. I feel like I'm really fortunate to report to a woman in a leadership role and have that strong role model. I've been in a bit of a vacuum for five years because that's what it's been like for me. At the bank, I've only ever reported to women. So I've been really lucky to be able to see myself surrounded by women in leadership roles. Unfortunately, that's not the standard, especially in the financial industry. When you started out, I imagine that there were a lot of men at the top. So I'm wondering if that ever discouraged you. You're right, there was a number of men at the top, and frankly, there still are. Did it discourage me? No, but it made me work harder, and it put me in a position that I wish I didn't have to be in. I I had to prove myself, Sarah. I think all of us, regardless of gender, need to prove ourselves by meeting expectations. Unfortunately, if you put me next to a man doing a similar job, I have to try so much harder than he does, and it seems a bit unfair. That said, this kind of thinking starts at the top. I'm very fortunate our CEO doesn't see staff through a gender lens. He looks at everyone through a talent lens. That opens up opportunities. And I've been given opportunities, but I've also lost some. But I will be clear, uh, it was not because of my gender. It was because there was someone else who was more suited to the position. I could easily say, this was taken away from me. But it's really important to think about why. What are the circumstances? Instead of seeing it as a negative, I saw the woman who gave the opportunity uh, to me to be a mentor and a teacher. And that taught me things I wouldn't have known otherwise. I'm curious, Sarah, what, what, what motivated you to grow in your career? Something that's been really helpful to me is to see that what I'm looking for is within reach, like Avery was saying. Um, networking is a huge portion of this. When I got started in the mortgage industry, it was incredibly male-dominated. And I found from meeting people and networking that there were women out there doing the very kind of work I wanted to do. I found that hugely valuable. I used to really dislike networking because to me, it brings to mind visions of standing in a crowded banquet hall and making awkward small talk and just handing people your business cards. But expanding your network can show you people like you who are doing the work you're doing or want to do and absolutely crushing it. Um, so that's that's one huge one. And another avenue I found to be incredibly helpful is social media. It's made it really accessible to find others out there who are doing something that I really want to do. So engaging with those people, joining a group they host, whatever that is, has helped me to explan- expand my circle to include people that I want to emulate. So I find once you fill your social feed with examples of other people like you who have reached goals you want to, 
all of a sudden it doesn't feel so out of reach. Um, to anyone listening though, avoid the whole, can I pick your brain trap and asking people to do unpaid labor? That's not cool. I want to go back to the piece I was talking about mentorship. This is this is huge for me. Never mind my business background, and uh, you know I look after sales nationally, and I'm I've got my hands in a bunch of I got my hands in everything to be honest with you. But my favorite part is mentoring people, and why, as I told you, is my experience. And I really believe that the years that I've had, I've been able to gain that experience. And, you know, that's why I've been lucky enough at my organization to be chosen every year to mentor, if not just one person, sometimes I've had two. I think it's hugely important. And again, I go back to, and I tell them this, I'm going to share experiences with you that you may be able to apply to your everyday role. Circumstances may be a little bit different, but, you know, in most times when I share those experiences, they can apply it to what's happening in their role, whether they're a people manager um, or if they're just trying to deal with a colleague, that may be difficult. But finding a mentor, I think, is again, critical for people. In a lot of cases, people think they have to deal with it on their own. We've been trying as an organization to say, it's okay to reach out to a mentor. It's okay if you don't have the answers, because people always think they have to have the answers to things. And you know, listen, I'm, I'm over 50 and the people that I mentor are obviously much younger than me, but I can tell you, Avery, through my mentoring process, I learn a lot from them as well. What do you, what do you think about, you know, somebody finding a mentor to, 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 to help them and not for them to see it as, oh, I can't do this. Um, you know, so, you know, a mentor is not a good thing for me because then it shows that I don't, I don't really know how to do my role. What, what's your thoughts on that? I think that anything that fuels your growth is a good thing to do. Um, and I think that mentorship can come in many different forms. I think that if you have a specific individual that um, you see doing a thing that you want to do and this, regardless of their age or how long they've been working, there's something that you feel like you could learn from them. I think that it's fantastic to connect to that person and to gain insight from them. Uh, I personally don't actually have um, a, a formal uh, mentorship relationship or coaching relationship with anyone, but I learn a lot from people that I consider distant mentors. Um, like uh, I read a lot of books and I follow a lot of folks that are doing very cool things. And I learn from them uh, and through the conversations I have with them or uh, just from the moves that I see them making in the industry or the content that they share or the blogs that they post. Uh, and then also from books, I feel like I have mentors in all sorts of different people living and dead <laughs> that teach me new ways of approaching things. Um, I think that w no one knows it all. Uh, and, and I think that as we're in this, this transformative and ever evolving space, uh, regardless of what industry you're in, I think that there's a lot of evolution that's been happening, even just this shift to working to remote being remote. That's a big shift for a lot of people. And this is all, this is new for all of us, right? Um, it, during a pandemic, I mean, like, so I think that, um, Yes. So my short answer is anything that fuels your growth is good. And if you have the opportunity to, to partner with, work with, collaborate, learn from a mentor, then do it. Uh, and if, if it's something that you can do for free, even better. <laughs> better. Well, you know, I said, and I'll end on this, but I said to my, uh, the CEO of, uh, of our company, I said, not one person in this organization has all the answers, but collectively mm -hmm. we do. 
Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I really believe that. Um, so it goes along to saying that not everybody knows, not everybody is right on everything. So, you know, that, that collaboration and what people bring to the table, right. They add value, right. There's something that they're going to bring to the table. So no, I, I, uh, I totally agree with that. That's what I like to call collective growth. No, that's the word I wanted. Collective growth. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna use that with my CEO next time. <laughs> it's funny because we t- we talk about this a lot, and, and Kim and I. So when we launched Stance, we had a couple of um, launch events, and the one that we had in Vancouver, we had Manjeet Minha speak, and she spoke about mentorship, and um, she said this, and it, I still think about it to this day. She said, you know, make it make it a point not only to find a mentor but to be a mentor. And I was sitting there in the audience, this was maybe two years ago. And I'm like, well, I can't mentor anyone. What do I have to teach anybody? And Kim and I actually had this conversation. She's like, Sarah, you can teach people things. Like there is always someone who has, can benefit from what you have to offer. And I think that especially as women, we give ourselves so little um, credit to the things that we've learned along the way that, and so now it has, you know, gotten to the point where I am mentoring a colleague. And when it first started out, I thought, oh my gosh, what is she getting out of this? And she tells me all the time, she says, Sarah, I learned from you all the time. And I'm like, Okay, but that's my own imposter syndrome talking, but that's a whole other conversation. A whole other one. (laughs) But I wanted to end on kind of a happy, light note, for me anyway. I want to talk about Sunday showers. Um, Sunday showers was my first time meeting you virtually, Avery. And I have always loved the concept as someone who is, I'm unmarried, I don't have kids, so I never will get a party. And, you know, all the people I went to school with got their engagement parties, they had their weddings, they had their baby showers. So I don't get to have a party. So Sunday showers really spoke to me. Was that really kind of where it came from or what what sparked that for you? Yeah. So my sister uh, got married the summer that I launched Sunday showers. And I think I was having a bit of a crisis because I had had all these... Um, these big milestones that had happened for me over that year. And there was crickets and they were really important milestones for me as well. Things that I wanted to celebrate, things that I wanted to um, like just seep in, soak in that moment. And I didn't do it because I thought it would be, I thought it might be narcissistic or uh, really tacky or just a bit silly to celebrate. And I wish I did celebrate more uh, now looking back. But at the time, my response to that was like, okay, women need to celebrate their big professional milestones, uh, women and non-binary folks. And we need to do more of that. So Sunday showers is meant to be, um, you know, a place, it's a business shower where women can collectively come together and celebrate their big wins, celebrate their professional accomplishments. And this isn't just women that are unmarried that don't have kids. Uh, this is women that do have kids that do all, that are also married, uh, that, that have these amazing careers that go oftentimes uncelebrated, uh, and, and, and oftentimes their existence, uh, is oftentimes just kind of this one dimensional, you're a mom now. Uh, so I think that that that's where the idea from Sunday showers came from. We have not been doing a lot with Sunday showers as a result of COVID. I just feel like we wouldn't be doing it. It's just not the same, not getting together. Um, and I also think that it's been a really tough year. I know that there's lots of things that people have to celebrate, but at the same time, out of respect to folks that 
aren't celebrating that much right now. It's been something I've been really thoughtful, mindful of uh, and conscious of. But uh, just a tidbit, I am, I've never, I haven't come out and said this, but I'm actually looking to connect with someone that may be a co-founder on Sunday showers. So this is my first time talking about that. I didn't know we were going to talk about Sunday showers today, but if you're listening in and you want to join as a partner with me on Sunday showers, I have a lot of really big ideas for it. I just need someone to help because I have a whole other business that requires a lot of my attention. So hit me up. (laughs) You could be out there co-founder of Sunday showers. Um, and yeah, I, I, I know people who have attended. I um, I unfortunately yeah. still have not, but uh, I hope to in the future when it happens because it, it's really a yeah. special thing. It's really, really thank a special you. thing. And thank you for <laughs> thank creating you. it. So Avery, where can our listeners find you online? You can find me at Avery Francis, A-V-E-R-Y Francis, F-R-A-N-C-I-S uh, on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, or you can email me. Uh, and the best way to get in contact is actually via my company's website. It's buildwithbloom.com, B-U-I-L-D-W-I-T-H-B-L-O-O-M.com. Amazing. Thank you so much, Avery, for joining us today. It's been a treat. Yeah, Avery, thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. When you're hiring and you have an applicant who maybe checks 75% of the boxes, say, but you have that chemistry and you know they'll be a good fit. You know they'll add something to the org. Are you ever hesitant because maybe they don't check the other, you know, 25% of the boxes? No, not at all, uh, Sarah, because I value real world experience. Something I've learned over the years is that someone can look great on paper, but that doesn't always translate to being able to actually do the job. I think real world experience needs to be valued more. There are things you just can't learn from a textbook. Absolutely. And I think this is also why internships are really key. And I'm so happy when I see the internship program at the bank. Um, To your point, a degree only says so much. Hands-on experience is also worth a lot. However, as many of us know, it's also a huge catch-22. You can't get a job without the experience, but you can't get the experience without the job. Um, So this is another reason why I think networking is so important. Um, I want to circle back to something we talked about in the intro. If there's one thing that I've heard you say many times over the past five years, it's these four words. I'm not your boss. Let's talk about that. (laughs) The word boss, in my opinion, is so antiquated. We're in a world of collaboration. Sure, there are things that need to be done independently. But if a business is going to grow, we need that collaboration. Uh, That's at least my opinion. Yeah, and it's it's like you said to our CEO, no one person has the answers, but together we do. To me, that's the definition of collaboration. Exactly, Sarah. Years ago, bosses were there to tell you what to do, and you wouldn't dream of challenging them. I think we're moving on from that. I think we absolutely are, and I see it more and more in our org. Um, you've literally said to me before, Sarah, don't just tell me what you think I want to hear. <laughs> Yes, because we all have ideas. Are they always the right ideas? No, but who decided the person at the top is the one to have all the answers? If that were true, teams wouldn't exist. We live in such a fast-paced world and things are changing all the time. We're not going to make any progress by resting on our laurels. We need different perspectives to move forward. 
thank you for listening to the Take Back Talk Back podcast, the podcast where we open real conversations about women, finance, and confidence. At Stance, we want women to confidently take ownership of their finances through open and informative conversations, just like this one. You know what we don't talk about enough? The sneaky ways we lose money. Everyone is always so quick to blame coffee, and I have to say I'm sick of coffee getting such a bad reputation. I love coffee. I live on coffee. Please don't come for my coffee. There's something worse. Account fees. So many of us pay up to 20 bucks a month just to have our money in the bank. I have a word that could describe this, but I work for a bank, so maybe I'll just say it's poppycock. There is an alternative. EQ Bank doesn't charge monthly fees, transaction fees, Interact e-transfer fees. There's no minimum balance and you earn a high interest rate on every dollar. Skip the bank fees and have your coffee. The Take Back Talk Back podcast is brought to you by EQ Bank, Money Well Banked. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Equitable Bank. Any information provided is for information purposes only, and Equitable Bank makes no representations as to the validity, accuracy, or completeness or suitability of any content. You should seek the advice of a qualified professional or undertake your own research before making financial decisions. This podcast is produced by the phenomenal team at Quill. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify.